This episode of Astorium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com history. And start your journey into podcasting right. Hi. This is Tawny from the Dirty Bits Podcast, and you're listening to Historium on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. The United States is far from the world's first democracy. That title probably goes to the ancient Greeks, even though they excluded women and slaves. Neither is the U.S. even one of the longest-running democracies. Vikings established a parliament in Iceland called the Althing back in the 9th century, and the Iroquois Confederation in North America resembled a democracy for over 800 years. However, democracies are fairly rare throughout history. That's because they're hard to create and even harder to keep. Essentially, the entirety of the American Democratic Republic really hinges upon one thing, the peaceful transition of power. The idea of this episode began with a story that happened directly after Lincoln's assassination. Lincoln had been carried across the street from Ford's theater and was now on his deathbed. Two aides of the dying president were sent to fetch the new one. They arrived at the Kirkwood House, a hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, where Vice President Andrew Johnson had been staying. When they knocked on his door, there was no answer. Fearing that assassins had reached the Vice President as well, they barged in. They found Andrew Johnson passed out drunk on his couch, his eyes puffy, his hair matted with mud from the street outside. They were unable to wake him up for several minutes. I couldn't help but wonder what these aides were thinking as they summoned a doctor and then a barber to get Johnson ready to be sworn in as the new president of the United States. How was this man supposed to lead the country through the tail end of the Civil War and the inevitable trials and tribulations that come after one? While I couldn't confirm the exact validity of this story, it made me think about the strange circumstances that often surround presidential inaugurations and the sometimes unorthodox ways new presidents are sworn in to the highest office in the land. This episode will jump around American history exploring several stories about how ordinary citizens became the President of the United States and back to citizen again. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to this mini-storium Episode 31, The Republic Remains. President, you raise your right hand. I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I, Harry S. Truman. You solemnly swear. You solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute the office. The office of President. President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Mini story number one. Could have been king. In 1797, after the citizens of the fledgling United States elected John Adams to replace the beloved George Washington, 
Adams wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail. In it, he described how he felt about becoming the new leader of the Great American Experiment, explaining how he could not sleep the night before his inauguration. I mean, who could blame him? In the letter, he also explained the inauguration itself. He described the scene as sublime. He claimed there wasn't a dry eye in the crowded room, except for the eyes of George Washington, who said to Adams, I am fairly out and you are fairly in. Let us see which of us will be the happiest. George Washington, the man who could have been king, just wanted to go home. And now, he could. The newly appointed President John Adams gave a speech after his inauguration, now the traditional inaugural address. In it, he stated, America not only broke to pieces the chains which were forged and the rod of iron that was lifted up, but frankly cut asunder the ties which had bound them and launched the nation into an ocean of uncertainty. With this successful transfer of power from one president to another, the United States was launching itself into an ocean of uncertainty, an ocean that the country is still navigating to this day. Mini story number two, The Carnation and the Cowboy. Early in his career, William McKinley was given a red carnation by a political opponent. He then began a stunning string of political victories, landing him in Congress and eventually as the President of the United States. All the while, he considered that carnation to be his good luck charm. He decorated the White House with carnations and had a single carnation pinned on his suit lapel at all times. In 1901, President McKinley was visiting Buffalo, New York for the 1901 World's Fair. There, McKinley, along with tens of thousands of others, marveled at light shows powered by electricity, watched illustrious displays of fireworks, and examined the wonders of the new X-ray machine. While greeting the public, the president met a 12-year-old girl named Myrtle Ledger. He smiled to her, unpinned his lucky carnation from his lapel, and gave it to her. He said, I must give this flower to another flower. She smiled and thanked him. Farther back in the line stood Leon Zolgos, a man with large bandages covering his hand. These bandages were actually concealing a small pistol. After shaking the president's hand, Leon shot McKinley in the abdomen. The young Myrtle Ledger, still holding the president's lucky carnation, ran with the fleeing crowds. Meanwhile, the vice president was in upstate New York meeting with fish and game officials. His name was Teddy Roosevelt. He was told that McKinley had been shot and rushed to Buffalo to see the president. When he arrived, he was told that the president was actually recovering, and he was encouraged to go on his planned family vacation in the Adirondacks. But in a few days, a runner was sent into the mountains with news that the president's wounds were now infected, and he was near death. Roosevelt and his wife Edith rushed to Buffalo on a series of stagecoaches. Upon arriving, they were told that the doctors could not find the bullet and that the president had died. Little did they know, the president died within a few hundred feet of a newly invented x-ray machine that could have been used to find the bullet and save his life. Teddy Roosevelt quickly gathered some members of McKinley's cabinet at a prominent lawyer's home in Buffalo. They met for a brief time, and then reporters were let in to witness the inauguration. Roosevelt is reported as saying this before taking the oath. I will take the oath, and in this hour of deep and terrible national bereavement, 
I wish to state that it shall be my aim to continue, absolutely without variance, the policy of President McKinley for the peace and honor of our beloved country. At 3 p.m. on September 13, 1901, Teddy Roosevelt became the 26th President of the United States. Expressing fears of many old-line Republicans, prominent Senator Mark Hanna said, That damn cowboy is President now. Myrtle Ledger kept William McKinley's lucky carnation for the rest of her life. Mini story number three, JFK to LBJ. And very often you'll find a zipper hidden in the uh, arm. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing from all indications at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Let me quote to you this. And I'll, you'll excuse me if I am out of breath. A bulletin, this is from the United Press from Dallas. President Kennedy and Governor John Colony have been cut down by assassin's bullets in downtown Dallas. They were riding in an open automobile when the shots were fired. The president, his limp body carried in the arms of his wife, Jacqueline, has rushed to Parkland Hospital. President's wife, Jackie Kennedy, was not hurt. She walked into the hospital at her husband's stretcher's side. Governor Connolly was shot in the upper left chest, and the first unconfirmed reports say the president was hit in the head. That's an unconfirmed report that the president was hit in the head. Senator Ralph Yarbrough burst into tears just a few moments ago. Senator Yarbrough said, I saw a Secret Service man sitting on the rear of the presidential car and pounding the car with his hands in despair, anguish, and pain. I knew something horrible had happened. The vice president could barely move. Dozens of Secret Service agents were packed in around him in the hallway of Parkland Memorial Hospital. Hundreds of reporters and other people of Dallas swarmed around the building. The doctors had President Kennedy in a room, but anyone who had seen what had happened knew he was gone. Lyndon Johnson couldn't even begin to imagine what Jackie was feeling. He would catch glimpses of her blood-stained pink suit from the hallway as doctors entered and exited the room where JFK's body was. Johnson fielded several phone calls from various Washington bigwigs trying to determine the best way to proceed. The Secret Service urged Johnson to get on Air Force One and immediately return to Washington. But he refused, saying that he would not leave without Jackie and her husband's body. With difficulty, the Secret Service agents forged a path through the crowd to the motorcade outside of the hospital. JFK's body was placed in a casket and taken to Air Force One. Johnson was driven by an unmarked police car to Love Field. Cautious of other potential assassins, he was squeezed in between two Secret Service agents and kept below the car's window level the entire way there. The motorcade arrived at Love Field, and everyone began boarding Air Force One. Kennedy's casket was loaded onto the plane. They were cleared for takeoff. From the presidential airplane, Johnson telephoned Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and asked if he heard what had happened to his brother. He said he had. Johnson showed what sympathy he could over the phone, and Bobby Kennedy advised Johnson to take the presidential oath of office before the plane left Dallas. President Johnson chose Federal District Judge Sarah T. Hughes, a long-standing friend, to swear him in. It was dreadfully uncomfortable in the stateroom of Air Force One. 
The air conditioning was turned off to allow for a quicker takeoff. 27 people were packed in like sardines to the square 16 by 16 foot room. Jackie Kennedy stood alongside Johnson before he took the oath. The photographer asked her to move to the other side of Johnson to hide from the camera the bloodstains and brain matter that were still on her pink Chanel suit. Instead of the usual Bible, the now President Johnson was sworn in on Kennedy's Catholic prayer book taken from his Air Force One bedroom. In that cramped compartment, surrounded by many people with tears still in their eyes, standing next to his wife and the new widow Jackie Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson took the oath of office and became the 36th President of the United States. Meanwhile, at a Catholic school in Washington, D.C., Lucy Johnson was in a Spanish class when two Secret Service agents entered the classroom and told her that her father was now the president. Mini-story number four, Silent Cal. Calvin Coolidge seemed an unlikely candidate to ascend to the office of the president. Firstly, his nickname was Silent Cal, He was an incredibly quiet, solemn man. He cared not for luxury or vice, and was known to be pretty boring. A potentially apocryphal story has it that a woman seated next to him at a dinner said to him, I made a bet today that I could get more than two words out of you. He looked to her and replied, You lose, and did not speak for the rest of the night. He often seemed uncomfortable in political high society and was inevitably asked why he attended all of these fancy dinner parties if he so clearly wasn't enjoying himself. He apparently replied, gotta eat somewhere. Later, he is recorded as saying, the words of a president have an enormous weight and ought not to be used indiscriminately. I think the American people want a solemn ass as the president, and I think I will go along with them. He was labeled stoic and stiff, but that in itself had a certain charm for politicians used to being surrounded by ambitious charlatans and prideful aristocrats. That's why in 1920, when powerful political party bosses met to put forward presidential nominees, they simply disregarded Coolidge outright. These party bosses picked Warren Harding for their presidential nominee. They also said who they wanted to nominate for vice president as well man by the name of Irvin Linroot, a senator from Wisconsin. However, these party bosses left the meeting early after confirming only Harding for president. The rank-and-file officials of the Republican Party, starving for an act of defiance against their absent party bosses, instead picked Calvin Coolidge for the vice presidential nominee. The party bosses were furious, but together, Harding and Coolidge won the 1920 presidential election. Despite staying quite popular, Warren Harding's presidency was marred by scandal. He had nominated several close friends to fill out his cabinet, and nearly every single one of them was involved in some form of corruption, the extent of which was not uncovered until later. Warren Harding was on the final leg of his tour of the west coast of the United States when he began falling ill. The press covered Harding's illness in detail, and the public was hungry for any information about the health of their leader. Harding alternated between good and bad health, but eventually died from a heart attack in San Francisco. He was only 57 years old. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, Calvin Coolidge was visiting his family at their old homestead in rural Vermont. The homestead did not have a telephone or even electricity, so 
a runner was sent out to report to Coolidge that he was now the president. That runner arrived at midnight, and Calvin Coolidge let the man in and went upstairs. He told his wife, Grace, that Harding had died. He put on a suit, said a prayer, and walked down the stairs. By now, a local politician, a reporter, a local labor union official, and Coolidge's father were gathered in the family parlor. The politician, Porter Dale, persistently urged Coolidge to take the oath now to ensure the continuity of the presidency. Calvin Coolidge's father was a local justice of the peace and a Vermont notary, so he volunteered to administer the oath of office to his son. At 2.47 a.m. on August 3, 1923, in front of only a few people, in a family parlor lit only by a kerosene lamp, Calvin Coolidge became the 30th President of the United States. Afterwards, President Silent Cal Coolidge went back to bed. Mini story number five, what can we do for you? After concluding the session in the U.S. Senate, Vice President Harry Truman was walking with the Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn. A Secret Service member came up to them and told Truman he was being summoned to the White House, and it was urgent. Truman went with the agent. He told Rayburn he'd have to get that drink with him some other time. President Roosevelt was currently down south, getting some much-needed rest. Truman figured it was something to do with the war, until the agent said he was being summoned by the First Lady. Truman now feared the worst. FDR's health had been in decline. Leading a war effort tends to have that effect on people. Roosevelt's mind raced the entire way to the White House. Upon arriving, Eleanor Roosevelt greeted them. She confirmed Truman's fears. FDR had died of a stroke earlier that day. Shocked, Truman asked Mrs. Roosevelt, Is there anything I can do for you? She replied, No, is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one in trouble now. He was sworn in at the White House that evening. Truman was in trouble. He was tasked with leading the United States through the tail end of the Second World War. When Germany surrendered as the Russians took Berlin, victory in Europe Day was celebrated throughout the Allied nations. Truman said he wished for nothing else than for FDR to have been there to witness it. Truman made some incredibly tough decisions, and after serving the rest of FDR's fourth term, he won his own term as well. He later began the Korean War and survived an assassination attempt. Truman was eventually defeated in the 1952 presidential election by Dwight Eisenhower. After Eisenhower's inauguration, Harry Truman and his wife Bess had no vehicle upon leaving. Instead, they took a taxi to the train station. How strange it must have felt, waiting in a taxi at a traffic light for the first time in eight years. Harry and Bess Truman returned to their modest house in Independence, Missouri, where they lived out the rest of their lives. Truman wrote his memoirs and lived off his small army pension from the First World War. Eventually, though, the Trumans were essentially living in poverty as Harry refused to cash in on his presidential fame. Congress eventually passed a bill providing a stipend for past presidents. Many believe this was directly because of Truman's situation. Herbert Hoover, despite being incredibly wealthy, took the pension as well, as to avoid embarrassing the Trumans. For Harry Truman and his wife, there were no lucrative speaking deals, no full-time security detail, no publicity or fame. The 33rd President of the United States, 
the man who first authorized the use of atomic weapons and changed the course of history, lived out the rest of his life in relative obscurity in his small home in Missouri. I don't know if it gets more American than that. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you're a fan of Historium, you can follow it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to support the show and get some sweet merch and supporter rewards, you can donate to Historium on Patreon. Another incredibly easy way to help Historium out is by leaving a rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen. That takes only a few seconds and can really help other people find the show. As always, thanks for listening.